Welcome back to Pacify You with Autistic Leah for the second episode. This episode is quite long, so we'll keep this like beat me soul. So I'll let them tonight you know as you're in a follow on social media for this podcast. It's at Pacify Autistic Leah and on every you can also find followers at a new rainbow project that's where it's on TikTok where you can find more of the videos. And also on Instagram, you can also get some updates on the New Rainbow Project at New Rainbow Project, but mostly at Pacifying Autistic Clear. Any updates and information will be available at www.newrainbowproject.com. And if you want to get in touch, you can get to in touch via the handles mentioned. Also, if you want to email a podcast, it's pacifying at newrainbowproject.com. This is a great interview with Lavender Vane. When I was quite glad to do it, it talks about autism, uh, being ADHD, tra- uh, trans, long, uh, the experience coming out as trans, and you know, also about doing regression and being in the ABD community. So let's get into do you want to start by introducing yourself? I am Lavender Rain. I am 25. I've been in the ABTL community, age regressor community, actively five years, considering most of it is on the internet. Most of my time is spent usually with my cat. We've been in the age regressor within the ABTL community. Do you want to explain what age regression means for you? And- age regression for me is a state of mind that I had to take some time to understand for myself because it was something that I think I, I experienced without any real understanding of the context of what like it actually is and how it applies to me. I know that many other age regressors, APTLs go about it or experience it differently. And they use that experience for similar reasons on a more personal level, very different reasons. As for me, it's commonly, many others would probably say the same thing, but it's uh, therapeutic. It's a way for me to tap into the youthfulness that I missed out on when I was much younger, uh, growing up in a rough household. This allows me to have that freedom, that, that release of responsibility mentally, where my partner is able to kind of take the wheel, manage me if she so needs to. It's also, if she is not there, being able to live in my world and get away from the the major stressors of being an adult, because there's a lot of expectations and pressures on adults these days as the world has changed and progressed very quickly. So it's very hard to keep up with the demands. So it's like a mental retreat, either multiple times a day, it could be once a day, once a week. Really just depends on how I'm feeling, how vulnerable I'm willing to feel at that given moment. It is also taking place usually within the safe space of my own home. It does happen in public sometimes, but I understand that people tend to frown upon that. I don't outwardly express that. Usually my partner is very good at noticing it when it happens in public. Generally, she's very 
playful about it. She will feed into it. The fact that I am an adult and I do have a neurodivergent adult brain, I am still aware of the environment that I'm in. So it's not like a complete mental checkout. Yeah. It's more or less a adaptation of my behaviors to fit that emotion that I'm feeling at that time. Whether it be overwhelm, excitement, very strong emotions can come out and it can contribute to age regression. To clarify, age regression for me is just a way to tap into that space in my brain where I wasn't feeling safe at that actual age. Now that I'm an adult, I can revisit that when I feel safe to do so. So what does age regression look like for yourself? And how does your partner recognize how your age regression presents? My speech patterns tend to change very quickly. My attitude, the way I hold myself, I become a little bit more reserved. I clam up, I close off a little bit. Usually like hands come closer to my body, my feet will come closer. And then in terms of speech patterns, they'll start to change. There's a general lack of complex language. Everything scales back to very simple statements like, I'm thirsty, or I want that. And I can't express exactly what it is. So then I end up going to pointing. I'm semi-fluent in sign language, so I will sign if I must, uh, if I'm not able to actively get that out. This is also commonly known as nonverbal, quote unquote. I'm not able to verbally express what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm experiencing. So I have to go about like pointing, gestures, sounds, high pitch sounds that like express some kind of happiness or unhappiness, uneasiness, anxiousness, excitement. So it is a reduction of language application in terms of how adults sounding I am versus how youthful sounding I am. I'd say that's the side that affects your communication and it can be something that links to your autism as well, being autistic. If you're going through sensory overloads, feeling a bit burnout, then language does get simplified and like sometimes you become semi-verbal to non-verbal, but most stressed that can come from any trauma-based conditions, mental illnesses that can sometimes be co-diagnosed with being autistic. How do you find that being autistic and an age regressor, how do you separate that from your autistic traits? There is a definite separation between the two. When I'm recognizing that it's mostly like an age regression thing, it's the cognition, my interaction, with everything definitely like scales back. Whereas my autism, it's, it's perpetual. It's always there. It's the way my brain perceives. It's the way just how I handle existing in general. For example, with my autism, I'm very sensitive to like textures, certain sounds, public spaces. I'm generally more anxious, more on the lookout. My awareness tends to heighten a little bit. Whereas with age regression, my awareness will actually dial back. I have almost run into traffic a couple of times on accident. Whereas with autism, I am 
very hyper vigilant because my brain is at like all time high. Things are just going on up here that just shouldn't be trying to process all the sounds that are going on, all the smells, multiple conversations going on at once, buses, cars, buildings. Again, this is specific to being in public. Then as for the age regression, that's when the overload becomes too much, my brain will begin to shut down. And then that's when that starts to kick in. That decline of cognition does begin to reduce. And then that's when my partner has to step in, say, are you okay? Then I will generally start having to find alternative ways to communicate what I'm feeling to her. Like I'm overwhelmed. I am hungry. I am thirsty. I'm tired. I'm cranky. I want to go home. I don't want to be here. That kind of thing. It's when the autism is so overwhelmed that the brain kind of like that, the, I'm not too sure which part of the brain it would be, but my interaction, my, my, Communication definitely starts to, to decline after a while. So it's something that definitely links not to things to you being autistic and your autism definitely affects how you age regress and how it coexists in your brain. Absolutely. Yes, there is some kind of link between the two. Um, and that's not to say that me as an autistic person, I'm innately more likely to be childish. It's just, I think how it manifests in me specifically that's how it manifests. Just that overload begins to cause those struggles in communication. As you said, the communication and lack of awareness are almost relating to traffic, like losing a sense of danger and becoming a bit more obliviousness. That's a lot how it perceives in public. So how does it perceive in your private life? And, you know, as I said, that some of it's linked to trauma. And with your private life, how have you, like, from age regress and, you know, gone to ABDL as well? In the private area, I would say I spend a lot more time in that headspace because there is that security. I don't have to worry about myself running into traffic. I don't have to worry about dangerous outside force doing something. And it also, I think, is I'm more consciously aware of the fact that I step into that regression when it becomes more of an ABDL regression thing rather than like that cognitive yeah. overwhelm thing manifests more in the home. Again, because there is yeah. that that barrier of safety. Like I am not exposed to whatever outside variables. I can go in and out whenever I want. And I tend to spend more time in that headspace as well because my partner and I are relaxing, just talking, having fun. The way I dress also happens to 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 play a lot into that too. Most of the time I do spend in comfortable, more youthful clothing, so to speak. Out in the outdoor world, I'm usually dressed a little bit more appropriately because just to the area that I live in, you don't see that a lot. I also live in a climate where wearing pajamas all the time just isn't the ideal thing to do. Within the home, I am purposely stepping into that because I feel safe to do so 100% of the time. Yeah. And it's like as hint that in more form that with you doing it more voluntary as doing the as you said, in public, 
but as it sounds, there's still quite a mask with it that it's only that. It's a communication and like your sensory cognition that is kind of regressing when you're out in public. So as you said, with like sensing, you know, when it's stuff like when it comes to traffic, you know, I would be more risk of like, oh, I guess it reflects with the autistic traits then in public can be of the sensory process and stuff, I guess. That's something that is more different to the more voluntary or the like the stuff like you I guess find comfortable in home like that kind of helps heal the more inner child off like the stuff that you've talked in a previous interview about that you know it's like I guess you can enjoy it with your own choices a bit and feel a bit more calm relaxed exploring that in your own private life and private space so you know when you're in that space in your house what do you do to like Come and relax yourself then and what, you know, like the things that you like to do then to in your like little space and break age regressed space in your home. Absolutely. Yeah, no, out there it's like a, it's a response to overwhelm. Here it's a way for me to explore and to just feel comfortable in that. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a great way to to look at that and to explain that for sure. Yeah. And so as you say, when you're at home, then what does that like look like for yourself? You know, what are the things that you like to do to calm and relax yourself in like a more regressed or like little space then? So the things I typically like to do, a lot of cuddling with my partner. Physical touch is a very big thing. I think I was deprived of a lot of that physical touch with my with my mother during those very important years of my younger life so a lot of it is like just being close to someone that I feel safe with that I can open up to someone who expresses themselves in a more I guess maternal way my partner is She's got very strong maternal instincts so I think she she cues into that very well TV, we watch just a lot of shows together. In my own time, when she's at work, I'm watching Peppa Pig, Garfield, cartoons, things that just make me feel cozy, things that I liked to enjoy back then that were often interrupted or taken away or reduced to some way. I can indulge a little bit more. Arts and crafts, I draw a lot. I'll scribble on paper. I'll allow my brain to just wander, not worry about coloring in the lines, anything like that. I can relinquish that a bit more. Legos are another big thing that I that I interact with quite a bit. I wasn't actually deprived too much of Legos at a younger age, so I think that's just something that I can continue to enjoy. And I think as obviously more sets have come out, I've explored those sets and sold them to make the money back to get more so it's just kind of like continuing the uh, activities that I enjoyed then and then also re-indulging in the things I wasn't able to just the physical touch with my partner certain tv shows that were consistently interrupted as a younger child either from just arguments or it was time for me to shut down or whatever, and I just wasn't ready to. Story times are another one. My partner will very willingly and very regularly read any story she can pull off from the internet. I've, I think it was just the other day, 
fully locked in the three bears. It was an adapted version of it, which I absolutely loved. It's a little bit longer, a little bit more in depth, but because there was more detail in it, the adult brain of mine was able to cue into it a little bit more. But the little side of me understood that like, this is Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It's just a little bit longer of a story. Even though I have ADHD, I'm still, my focus is still very honed into that. Her voice, the timbre of her voice, telling the story. I'm a big storyteller myself. So when I'm hearing stories, it definitely, it activates that little space in my brain that really enjoyed absorbing information so story times tv legos drawing coloring books those kinds of things are definitely big things that i enjoyed then that i can reindulge in and continue to indulge in as an adult yes when you grew up you were always in the household where you felt happy environment and where you must have had to grow up more the than somebody else of your age, you know. So I guess that must be a difficult thing then. And I guess it's trying to explore that, get back to exploring that creativeness, the stimulatingness of what colouring can do, like playing with Lego, enjoying like certain cartoon cartoons or like stories. Because it's like, I say that, I think with age request, like a you'd, yourself and people within a, a community that it seems like a place where you can form where, where you might be like quite hyper empathetic or highly emotional mostly aware and having space where you can safely watch cartoons stuff like that where it might not be cause too much anxiety or stress that something that often adult television shows that could be quite triggering then. Is that something that you find that you benefit from with your age request space? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It was stress-inducing back then because I knew that at some point, because my brain was already up to here constantly all the time, that I think it was just like a consistent, persistent state of overwhelm and burnout where I wasn't able to really allow myself to get into what I was doing. So there was this this lack of connection with the activity that I was putting my focus and attention in at the time because of the environment. Now that I don't have to worry about that, that stress is gone, the, the tension, the constant worry of something going wrong, something happening, I am able to to let go, to just completely immerse myself and not worry about anything else really going on other than people blowing up my phone and I can ignore my phone completely so that kind of stuff definitely I just drew to a blank (laughs) it is definitely it stands very true the the ability to enjoy and absorb myself in those stimulating activities that were very much affected by outside negative variables back then yeah i can understand how some how we can like give you like the space that i think some adults would could benefit from like as you say that whether it's the men play therapy or like creating like safe space to you know explore things that aren't stressful and get away from some of the stresses from everyday life that can cause burnout 
person and anxiety, which can be more so for autistic people with burnout. And it's like, I think with burnout in autistic people, like, you know, you never return to the right energy and like the same ability to like mask or, you know, seem like the more, you know, neurotypical mind of how neurotypical people see us, the more find hard to function in a environment then with something that helped your autistic side of yourself and your side. But as you say that, you know, when your partner's reading your stories and as you say that, sometimes reading stuff that bit more complex from like a children's story, guess at the same time of being in our little space, you do need some element of like, yeah, like a way of stimulating the adult mind with some sort level of adultness, if you get mean to it. So how do you find, like, how do you find your bits, like, separate yourself from, like, your age-reverse space to your grown-up space? And, like, what are the things that you find for, you could advise people that if they feel like, they want to find a way of experimenting to make sure that they feel can feel quite stim- stimulated in a repressed space. What are the things that you would, ideas you would have for people like that, if you get what I mean? Sure. I think one of the biggest recommendations is I don't want to assume necessarily, but I want to at least consider that uh, a majority of the people who are stepping into this may have someone with them, like a partner, whoever that might be. I don't want to exclude individuals who are kind of figuring all this out on their own. So what I can say is allow yourself to be comfortable in your own skin. And that's not like as a trans as a transgender person that creates a whole different conversation. What yeah. I what I want to convey here is allow yourself to step into that space really consider the things that you would have done or the way you would have interacted with those things that you want to try or experiment with apply that slowly you don't want to go head in first that could be very overwhelming i think taking it slow and experimenting with various different activities or opening yourself up to that just the the awareness of openness being aware to the idea of being open to that really helps because that tells your brain that this is something that we can consider and if we can consider it then we're more likely to do so especially if we feel safe then create boundaries for yourself and whoever's interacting with you talking about that partner that you have if you have a partner if you're fortunate enough to 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 have one express to them you know that i that i want to the people who are just getting into this express that i haven't done this i might feel uncomfortable i might feel silly don't feel that shame because shame is ultimately what's going to hold you back from doing that and that shame is ultimately like the root of a lot of negative emotions. Mental shame can paint a very negative perception on a lot of things because you've attached that emotion to those things. Like, oh, I, I want to try to regress into that 
However, I feel weird. I feel shame. It's okay. That's very normal. You'll feel silly. You'll feel weird. You get a yucky feeling and that's not all the time. It's very liberating being able to step into that for the first time. For others, it feels silly. For me, it felt silly because it was rammed in my head over years and years of having to grow up so quickly that I, I didn't, I wasn't able to make those connections. I can allow myself to do this. I can allow myself to feel positive emotions rather than guilt, shame, disgust, anxiety, creating boundaries, being open to it, and just being honest with yourself, just trying it out. You kind of have to, you got to dip your toes in somehow, somewhere. Then finding a community is a good way of doing it. It helps with that, that headspace. Feeling alone, like you're the only one, that can be very daunting because then that puts even more stress on you. Like if someone finds out about this, like I'm that, that one-off person that people are going to think is just really weird. It's the benefit of having these social places like Instagram, uh, Twitter X, as problematic as it can be, there are good people on there. I've met plenty of people on there who are nothing but sweet, wonderful people who have helped contribute to my age regression, have made suggestions on like, hey, these are the kinds of things that I do. You can try this with your partner, just communicating that with people that you trust. And I think trust is the number one thing, trusting yourself and trusting the people around you. Ultimately having trust in yourself, I think is a big thing too, because if you can trust yourself in that headspace, you can allow yourself to relinquish that control and not walk out feeling some kind of negativity that will ultimately benefit you in the long run. And finding things that you enjoy. Think back to the things that you did or that you would want to do. So if you want to get that Lego set, get that Lego set. If you want to get that stuffy, get that stuffy. If you want to get that board game, get that board game. Give yourself permission to do that. Because what I've noticed in talking to a lot of people in this community is they just didn't have that permission. They weren't allowed the access to these things that would have fulfilled them at that age. Allowing themselves the fulfillment is number one. If you want to walk in that store and you see something on that toy shelf that you really want, but you feel weird about it, just do it anyways. You're going to feel a lot better at the end. That's what I've taken away. Allow yourself that thing that you wanted. Like it's a thing to overcome that you understand many people would feel because with you know, an environment where you might not be able to, where you have to mask like yourself, you have to sometimes in the situations you feel like, for your own safety, you might have to mask your autism. And like, it's like sometimes you wouldn't be able to be as in public, you wouldn't be as regressed or into your little space, like in the clothes, you feel closer, you like to wear, in, within confidence. So it does take, so it does take a lot to get to that point. But I say that if you can just like listen to, vo like be able to hear voices like yourself, talking about you know your experience and your confidence and that can help help a person out because just you that you're not alone in this and there's other people who you know when you know like use these things that may not be typical of the age and it's good to challenge that stigma
barriers to things. So when you were started out being like experimenting with your age regressions for the things that you started out with and the things that helped you really explore and get into that space and made you feel happy in that space. At first, I had to accept that part of me was lacking. There was a part of like an integral part of my personality that needing that relinquishment, I needed to learn how to let go because I'm a very highly anxious person. I'm constantly holding on to internalizing things. Let that breath go. You're holding it in for too long. You're going to pass out eventually. Letting go of that, uh, the shame, the guilt, I had to internalize some kind of relief. And it wasn't easy telling myself that because things I was told I internalized over years. So having a partner that was comfortable and open to me letting go ultimately helps. Now, that's not a prerequisite to letting go. You don't have to have some external force, some external uh, source telling you you can also do this. That validation sure is helpful, but the ultimate source of validation is within yourself. No one can tell you what to do. No one can force you to do anything other than yourself. So I had to accept that I'm the arbiter of my life. I have agency. And as an autistic person, I think a lot of autistic people can relate to this. We're very aware to our to our self-advocacy. I think self-advocacy in autistic individuals is very high. There's a lot of studies that have, or there's a lot of metrics that have that have shown that, like self-advocacy, like, hey, I'm a person, I deserve X, Y, and Z. I know what I need. And people that disagree or say, no, I think you know, X, Y, and Z is better suited. That external invalidation can really negatively impact that internal validation that you're trying to have for yourself. So something that I actually have talked to a couple people about is don't worry about the naysayers. Don't worry about what other people have to say about that, especially if it's just negativity, because negativity really drives, it, it locks people in negativity. And this is what I was just talking about a second ago is like that shaming, that guilt. So for me, I had to understand that there is guilt and shame attached to that. And if I held on to that any longer, it was going to continuously impact negatively. Here we go saying negatively again. Yeah. My development as a person. So it's understanding that, that there's that missing piece. How do I go about finding that missing piece? And in in this case, it's age regression, it's enjoying more, and I think you put it in a really great way, not age-appropriate thing, because as an autistic person in a very shaky household, forced to grow up very fast, so I had to move away from those things very quickly, because at the time, it was, all right, it's this kind of time to put those things down, honey, and it's like, I don't really want to, but okay. Walking into the online age play or age regression space, I was immediately opened up to so many things, the first steps that I could take. So like, I think a lot of it had to do with like attachment items. Example I have nearby me is a stuffy. Stuffies are a great way to get to, to get into that because age regression and stuffies are very hand in hand. So having like something that you can cuddle with, something that you can become attached to. 
my first attachment. It's a Minnie Mouse stuffy, which my partner bought for me at a thrift shop. That was only a year ago. Even the course of the year is when a lot of this started to make more sense to me. I had to allow myself to buy stuffies. And after buying the stuffy, that opened up a space in my brain that was lacking, that missing piece. Having something I can cuddle with that has some auditory feedback. This one rattles. Sensory feedback that makes you feel comfortable, I think is important. For me, to sum it up is to, for me, it was just stepping into my first stuffy. Something that I could hold on to, feel. I can give it a name. I can give it a personality. It's an extension of me. Smaller side of me, that imaginative, creative adventurous part of me. I can go on adventures with this guy in my own mind. I can go on adventures with this guy in the outside world. And if I'm not feeling comfortable in a certain space, I have something close to me that reminds me that everything is okay. It's okay to feel vulnerable if I need to be. That totally doesn't make sense because as you say that, it's something that I feel like you identify as an age or like little you know it's something that I think anyway you know any autistic people might have their own versions of you know like a stuffy or whatever they like have different comfort items that help them out and you know they might feel attached to and like to carry and have as comfort thing for them because like it's like a sensory thing it's stimming thing and something that can help them anxiety and make you feel quite relaxed because something that you know you know when you go out as an autistic person you know some of us can you know like lack that confidence and sense of independence and I think because like if you're out on your own you know it can be quite feel quite lonely and isolated but I guess from when you like taking your stuffy with you or your cuddly toy or whatever it's something that I guess can make you feel a bit more relaxed, more at peace stuff, because it feels like you got some sort of like companionship, something with you that I guess in a way that doesn't make you feel totally on your own, is it? Absolutely. I spent about six months away from my partner just recently, and I have had him, this little guy right here, for oh just before Christmas. And before I got this, the Minnie Mouse stuff, I took her everywhere. I took her to the store, library, to work a couple times because there are times where work is just so stressful that I needed my Minnie near me. I would just keep her by my backpack. And fortunately, I think as time has gone on, a lot of the naysayers have drifted away. The generation of people that I hang out with tend to understand that. I'm jealous. You have the confidence to take a mini mouse stuffy with you out in public and you're 25. I envy you. I would feel awkward doing that. But you, you embody that confidence. You go for it. So that helps me too. It's also a societal thing. Having something or someone, I, I have to be honest with myself. He's a someone. He's not yeah. just a thing. He's a someone. Gives me that sense of connection with that part of myself, that younger, more adolescent attitude really does help, especially in times where I'm not able to be with a maternal figure that is with me at that time, my partner. So that fills a gap that was there for a long time because of that separation at a young age, that moving on from those childlike things that 
I didn't want to have to let go of because I was forced to grow up eventually grow up that that created that void I was watching a YouTube video this morning this content creator she does her entire channel is focused around autism stuff one of my special interests is autism and psychology and she was talking about this this individual who posted to it it was like am i the a-hole thread during the holidays there was a family get together and they were there was a, a a big blow up i will say between a couple of the family members and the autistic child of this family and they were upset that this autistic child still preferred more childlike things like squishmallows, toys, interactive toys, things like that. They were 19 or something at the time and how that was just too childish and not age appropriate. And I had a problem with that because here I am clutching my not age appropriate stuffy at 25 years old. Like you said, the stigma around age-appropriate thing is problematic and allowing yourself to have those things that are not age-appropriate really does help especially if it's something that you can take around with you it's like something like another person that kind of goes out by myself and feels signed independence but it's like last year like i had the dog dog my grandparents have had for years and looking after it now, and it's like until then, it wouldn't really walk or go on a walk even around my village. But now, like, since I had him, I'm like started to go out and walk around the village and you know, get a bit more active by doing something by myself. And it's that thing, as I said, wherever it's like, could even be like a pet, but it could easily be like some sort of comforter, like you, you said, you're like mini mouse stuffy or like the octopus one I have with you. That's something that, when you're going out, it can give you that sense of comfort. But i say if you have one person doing it, it's something that, once you build up the confidence for it, it can allow you to be a bit more able to unmask in public and less, say, undances about the thought of even doing it and can feel a bit okay with yourself and start to ignore any judgment and... Even by that, if, you know, like somebody there's easier doing that, as you said, yeah, it's people feeling a bit jealous of that. But then it could give, like, courage for another person to think of. If yeah, I would feel comfortable, more relaxed, less stress and anxious with something like that, maybe it's something I ought to try. Or maybe it's something that I should be more open to and shouldn't judge other people for doing so. As like it seems that, as you say that, there's the old societal issues takes, you know, like years, decades to overcome. But it's just like, well, the small things can definitely help. A great point too, pets. Pets can be a comfort item too. I grew up with cats and a couple dogs. I've been more of a cat person. I actually have two cats. One of them is right here in between my legs. She is my princess. And she brings me the ultimate kind of grounding she reminds me that it's okay to just sit and be cute and cozy and that everything is okay i think having an emotional support animal as as an autistic person really does help so it doesn't even have to be a stuffy blankie a toy it can even be a pet pets are 
a huge benefit too. It's often overlooked as like a comfort item. As you said, that's something that like you felt that it's something like missing from your personality when you talked about age regression earlier and it's like something that so when was it that you worked that it was like age regression and age regression that was missing from your personality and do you think that it's like you always been regressed and it's something that or was it something that you realized that you started doing I think it took a while for me to really look into it. This would actually be a, a great moment for me to explain my transitioning. Pre-transition, I was your typical stoic male, big beard, strong, couldn't show emotion, anything like that harms men. In that lack of desire, the willingness to tap into those emotions, and then that goes down that rabbit hole of men aren't tapping into their emotions. When I allowed myself to look into this and when I started transitioning, coming out of that strong stoicism, exploring age aggression helped me understand playfulness, understand uh, aloofness, allowing myself to not be so serious and to allow my imagination to flourish because femininity and childishness are very closely associated not linked i would say associated if you look at like disney princesses often very childish aloof imaginative very optimistic whereas the stoic male can be very grounded logical calculated so uh, embracing some kind of playfulness helped when i started going down this path as I started to transition, exploring femininity, that playfulness, one of the other missing pieces, because I took myself seriously for so long that I lost that connection with the, the playful, creative, imaginative nature that I think this as, as humans should be allowed to, to indulge a bit more. We're forced to conform to these very strict structured routines that dilutes that playfulness that a lot of people yearn for whether they realize that or not so age aggression has been one of those things that has allowed me that place to to explore the like youthfulness playfulness the things that I think my masculinity was locking in a box once that opened it was like Pandora's box as I've gotten older I've only been transitioning for a couple of years and I think I started or restarted. I've done this twice officially, like got back into my transition at 23. And at the time I was very closed off, anxious, angry, and pent up. When I finally let go of that negativity and that shame, and I allowed myself to step into that, I allowed myself to invest in cute, soft things. I opened myself up to those spaces in my mind that were locked away and I was I eventually started having conversations with like internal conversations with that younger side of myself that really needed that validation like hey I'm still here I I need you to recognize that I was ignored for a very long time and that put a lot more into my personality and it even helped me at work it gave me more confidence it it even helped me understand my autism more my sensory needs, my communication needs. I became more open with myself when I stepped into this. So when I became more open with myself, that 
stoked confidence that stoked I think so like a, a positive type of self-awareness too like not like a like an anxious self-awareness like oh am I doing something wrong you know, wearing the mask all the time constantly masking I've actually found myself masking a lot less in public I I almost I think as I've gotten older and as I've become more interconnected with this part of myself I, I almost become more autistic as I have gotten older because I know my needs, because I know the way that I interact with people, because I've spent more time in that headspace. Yeah. So. I, can, I can get the whole thing of, you know, like being a lot more autistic when you get older, because like as like a child, you might not be explained what autist, autism really meant. And something that I can understand how like for probably like people like ourselves because we have the lack of information that's kind of where it becomes like a special focused interest of wanting to understand ourselves more learn a lot more about being autistic but as you said you know that we transitions help you understand a lot more about your autism and self and that allows you to be a bit more expressive of your emotion and kind of deal with any like trauma and you know like stuff you've been through and you know any like feelings and all that so was it what was that made you realize or recognize within yourself that you you knew you, you were trans if you gave me like how did you know that you wanted to be trans you went to, to transition because as you said we were at one point but like stoic masculine somebody who wouldn't like discuss or reflect on your own most and said so what would you think was the turning point that you recognized that part in yourself that was as you lacking from your personality and lacking from your own expression i think it was a partner that i had at the time they were very feminine and there was a a feminine gap in me that I was missing my entire life. I low-key knew that I wasn't a boy. I needed something to attach that to. And I needed the freedom to explore that. When I was younger, my siblings and I would engage in role play and parallel play along with like TV shows that we were watching at the time. So like something that I was very big into was Scooby-Doo and Teen Titans, like the original Teen Titans. And my favorite characters between those two were Daphne and Raven. So I was always role-playing those two characters, very female characters. And that kind of dipped in and out. And as I got older, I started to feel a little bit more insecure about those feelings. And it kind of got internalized. And then as I got older and I started engaging in more adult relationships, I ended up in a very close, intimate relationship with a very feminine individual who is socially liberal, which at the time I was more socially conservative. And so, and as a very open-minded person, I really started to engage in conversation with this person about like the things that they feel and believe. I have to take a step back when I just mentioned, I needed something to associate. I needed a word, an idea to put that feeling that I had to. And sometime in my freshman, sophomore year of high school, that summer, before sophomore year of high school, and this was like 2013, 2014, I discovered the term transgender on my school computers. I had someone who I was going to school with who 
carried that label. And I was like, what is this? My father described to me what a transvestite was. So I kind of started looking that up and then I went to the rabbit hole of transgender. And that's when I, I think I, I finally had something that answered that question. Like, this is how I'm feeling. Okay. And so then I dabbled in that throughout high school, didn't get very good responses from my family. And so that further created some kind of internalization, like maybe this isn't right. Maybe I am wrong. And then it was just a lot of derogatory conversations from my family. And then that kind of further pushed that in. And then it wasn't until that partner that I had where I explained to them, like, I feel I've felt certain ways about myself in the past. I, I've wanted to transition. I'm 99% sure I'm transgender. I almost self-identified as gender fluid for the longest time because I found myself going in and out of it. And what I came to learn through this partner was I'm not gender fluid. I'm very much transgender because there are a lot of feminine aspects about me that have come out when I was a part of this this relationship. For example, this partner was big on wigs, very big on anime characters and stuff like that. So she was was cause making an, an online content for TikTok and she interacted with that audience and that femininity really resonated with me that kind of femininity that bright bubbly almost not really bimbo-esque but very hyper feminine to an extent and when I allowed myself to step into that when she expressed the the willingness to engage in a relationship with me was it when I started to really devote more time to actually pursuing that. So I think for the longest time I I, I really avoided transitioning because it prevented me from pursuing a relationship with someone because I'm very relationship driven. I've always I, I've I've I'd see, I had been seeking a long-term relationship from a very young age. I was a very devoted to someone in high school, wanted a high school sweetheart, came out to the trans as them. They didn't take it very well. Then it was on and off for about four years. And I'd have to, I'd have to closet that part of me just to keep this relationship going. And that wasn't fulfilling to me. So when this relationship came along where they were open to that, that really helped. And that is when I got on hormones for the first time. And then when that happened, the hormones started changing the way that my, my, my emotions manifested. I got far more emotional, upset very, very quickly. I got very just agitated very fast. So that had its negative consequences on the relationship, which didn't last very long or the relationship of consequently did not last very long and then I ended up moving out of state and then I closeted it all over again and then I was very devoted like okay at this point I know I'm a man I can't do this I've already tried it I've been on hormones it didn't work it didn't make me feel the right way and then I met my partner who I'm with now who we have been married for almost two years at this point and I have never felt any more interconnected with myself ever before So I think it was that validation from a partner that really allowed myself to open up to this part of myself. So if it weren't for her, 
I guess being bi as well really helped. And I even opened up to her about just my incontinence problems, which is where the, the diaper wearing comes from with the, the age play and stuff like that, which has been a problem across my entire life. A lot of trauma attached to that as well. She was very comfortable with that. She's like, okay, all right, cool. And then I expressed to her, you know, I was trans in the past and, you know, this, this person, we were together and I was transitioning and then like the hormones kind of had their negative consequences, all this stuff that I kind of just elaborated upon. Uh, she took that and she thought about it and she's like, no, I understand. And if that's something you'd want to do, I'd fully support it. And I'd love you the same. And I was like, okay, cool. And then I think it was the same month, same week, two years later, I got back on hormones and I haven't looked back since. I was just saying then, you know, when, when you were saying about, you you know, fe- feeling there was something missing in the personality, then it's, and for the whole story, as you explained about your trances, and as you say, that there was a lot of masking and, you know, like, you know, at the time, I'd say that when you were at your own, you know, most, when you were male present and pre-trances and, you know, at what would be like, seen as the most masculine and you know it it was something I guess was more of uh, you know trying to you know play something that you wasn't and I guess trying to be a person that you weren't and you I guess you wasn't in the environment where you could feel too confident and wasn't validated by your friends uh, you know like your partners and like the community environment you you know, grew up in, and I said that years ago you were more socially conservative, but as you said, it wasn't, I guess it wasn't so much being socially conservative, but it was more that grew up in an environment of social conservatism, and, you know, it's just that kind of projection and the impact of being exposed, being exposed to that environment, and how that kind of creates that mindset and I guess then having moved out of your state you know having and now having a partner who's bisexual you know a lot more socially liberal and progressive like that has allowed you to explore that because as you say that being autistic you know it's I said that sometimes you can be able to be a bit more individually minded able to be a bit more liberally minded, a bit more, you know, self-expressive and advocate for yourself. But it's only something you can do with the right information, knowledge and the right support and something that I suppose have a trans, you know, autistic people, have a, you know, gender fluid, non-binary people do struggle with that. Yourself, as you said, that like going for when you first tried transitioning before I guess at the time you probably was quite alone in it because you guess you didn't have anybody who could explain, explain and explore with you what transitioning actually looks like in terms of you know because it's one thing that I understand actually medically uh, you know physically transitioning it's Something that definitely isn't plain sailing and, you know, doesn't, you know, 
instantly make you feel it better within yourself, as you said, the hormonal changes and being autistic, dealing with that change of emotions can be quite overwhelming, but being in a position where you can have that support that this is, you know, normal to feel this way when you transition and feel now accepted and validated and how you feel now. Yeah, definitely. Environment is, that's something that I recognized very early on was environment is key when it comes to how an autistic person, an autistic person specifically can develop. Like if you, in my instance, closeted trans my entire life, my household and funny enough, wasn't even really that conservative either. Like my, my father, of course, is, had his conservative values because he was raised by the former World War II vet, shell-shocked, like to the nines. So like there was that. And my mother, psychologist, everything like that, works with kids, very socially liberal. And so like there's this weird dichotomous environment that I was raised in where I was like, they didn't understand a lot of things that I was dealing with internally because they had no exposure or knowledge in that. Specifically, I don't want to expose too much about my family or anything like that, yeah, but I do have... Yeah, I understand uh, that. No, my grandfathers are actually gay. I've had that kind of exposure. And so what my, my father was definitely of the of the opinion that is my, is my child just gay? And I had to explain to him, no, I still like chicks. So he's like, but you can't be trans and, and straight at the same time. And I'm like, are you sure? So... There was that that lack of education that really negatively impacted the relationship with my family and I. And then again, there's the the weird mixed, and I'm I'm not gonna drag politics in this, like conservative liberal household, like very family tied, but also very progressively minded without the the exposure of the outside world. It's very sheltered. Things were the way they were. My family like understood things the way that they were 20 years ago, but that didn't really apply to the times at that time because the internet was suddenly more proliferated than it has ever been. And it's only got more at that since then. But environment, stepping back to just environment is really key to the, the development. I think not even just autistic people is just anybody, allistic people as well. You stick a very artistic person in a very academic, structured household, you're going to get tug and pull. You put someone who may perceive the world spiritually a little bit differently into a very structured Christian household or vice versa, that can create tension, that can create some kind of dissonance later in life. Even within that person, they internalize all the things that they were raised in with that environment. They start to question things about themselves. Am I right? Am I wrong? Should I be feeling this way? Is it okay to be feeling this way? Am I am I just a weird? Am I that one off odd case? And a lot of the time, that is not the case. It's 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 environment. So now that when I was able to not when I was able to have that kind of support and have or when I was exposed to that kind of support and when I was in an environment that allowed for that kind of discourse did it allow me 
to open myself up to those potentials that maybe I can do these things with myself. I can explore these ideas and maybe this could actually benefit me. Maybe because I'm no longer held back by the beliefs that my family had imposed on me for so long. And they also were very big proponents of, you know, if you want to do these things, you're going to have to do it as an adult. But as long as you are under our household, under our roof, you you basically have to say and do as we tell you, which is toxic all on its own. Again, environment really does shape how someone can develop as a person. And I think separation from very overbearing parents, especially, or caregivers, whoever, doesn't even have to be parents, grandparents, aunt, uncle, whatever. Um, most of the time does dividends. You A lot of time it's can go one of two ways. You either see people do really well or you see people crash and burn because they had that lack of knowledge. And for me, I crashed and burned before things got better. And it was that learning experience through finally distilling myself into an environment that was conducive to the development of my personality. Yeah, I think it's that thing that, as I said, as I said, you don't want to go too like deeper personal into the family side of things. But from what I was hinting at then, it's like, like some of them want me to guess more happy is with the family is sometimes you don't always know how to talk to a family member about these things or feel entirely know how to feel in 100% safe and confident in talking about these things and feel off like would if, how it would affect your relationship with them and, well, and how it could impact them and cause more conflict. So you, then it, if you're entirely not 100% trustworthy that, you know, it could go well for you. It's then harder to be yourself in front of them. As you said, even though they weren't entirely, like, properly, like, socially conservative, different ideology, but I guess it's just that kind of, kind of wider society general and kind of quite common, the kind of anxiety about something more, very liberal and, you know, like something that isn't, you know, necessarily something ordinary or, you know, like within a community. As you say that, when you growing up and even people like, like 10 years ago and sometimes people of older generations, whilst they may have gay relatives and like gay grandparents and stuff like that, it's something that bisexuality and pansexuality may be something a bit confusing confused and anti-misunderstood and miss it as say if ever like being trans and transitioning you know where that's been played about about in the media and that's causing a lot of anxiety like even with some people who are not maybe not technically conservative but not strictly liberal but something that there's a lot of anxiety and te- you know uncertainty about allowing like as said, when you was child or law younger, like and and uh, your parents but exploring and trying to mask that certain areas of yourself and so for because autistic people are highly common to be divergent in gender and sexuality, then I can understand how highly common your experience must be for some autistic people. Definitely. See we still know not a lot. But we know a lot more than we did 20, 30 years ago. My mother is a psychologist and received her master's degree in psychology, researched her specialization in child psychology. 
she works day in and day out diagnosing kids with ADHD. So like to an extent, she understands neurodivergency. And that's something I've had to, to recognize, even though that they struggled raising me because of the way my brain worked and they didn't understand because there's a separation that exists in families who have neurodivergent children. I, I'm an autistic person. That's just who I am. It's a part of my personality. I don't have autism. I don't carry it around like a little handbag. I'm an autistic person. So like living with that day in and day out affects everything. With my mother being a psychologist, she's obviously very bright and well-educated. However, going past the basic differences between neurotypical and neurodivergent brains, our understanding or our perception of gender, sexual orientation, anything like that, is very diverse. Our understanding of what gender is, I think, is a bit more skewed because when we when we think about gender, at least me personally, I can't speak on behalf of all autistic people because it is very much a spectrum. Yeah. When I perceive gender, what is gender in the first place? You can look historically during what was it like the 40s, 50s, one of the presidents, can't remember exactly who it was, basically is the one who boys wear blue girls wear pink and that's just kind of how it's been since and it's been that very homogenous enforced thing for so long that come this more progressive generation of people they're a bit more open-minded and then we're given the internet internet discourse i think allowed more neurodivergent people to explore these ideas like okay like Gender can't be this weird binary thing. Like, I feel a certain way, but that doesn't line up with the binary. So am, am I broken? Is there something wrong with me? Gender dysphoria was visit the DSM-4. It was a neurological thing. It was a diagnosable problem. I know over on the other side of the pond, you have to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria to receive some kind of gender care. At the time of me receiving my care, that was, that was the case. I don't know if that's the case anymore. But because of this binary thing that has been established for so long, neurodivergent people have had this struggle with neurotypical people who subscribe to the binary. It, it creates, again, dissonance between us and them. It creates an us and them dynamic. And if you look at societally, even like right now, like how divided the entire world is not just the U.S. There yeah. are the same issues going on across the pond. Yeah, uh, the, the fight that I'm talking about. Yeah. So, like the the binary really did us in for a lot of issues, and I think neurodivergent people can understand that a little bit better because we are able to process things a little bit differently that maybe neurotypical people can't. And this is just a metaphorical example. We look at a painting and we can. We can draw conclusions that the person that painted the painting in the first place is like, what do you mean? I, I don't understand what you're getting at. So just because the way our brains are wired innately, I think arms us with the ability to challenge things that have been established and maybe have done us more harm than good. As I've stepped out of that binary, I feel more better as a person. I feel like I understand myself and I understand the world a little bit better because have been able to explore these things differently than the neurotypical people can that have been running the world for so long. That also being said, 
we also have to recognize that we are neurodivergent people. When I say we, we yeah. as neurodivergent people, I'm talking to the neurodivergent community. We live in a neurotypical world. We live in a world that is very structured and set up in a way that best suits people that fall into the typical brain chemistry, however you want to go about explaining that. So it's it's troublesome because when you have transgender people, binary people, pansexual people, yeah. whoever, trying to make these points to people that established a binary so long ago on very conservative values, it, it creates tension. You know, kids having traumatic experiences with their families, in my experience, they just don't understand. They don't get it out of touch. Yeah, that's, that's what you kind of hear a lot. It's like, you're just a little out of touch, old man. And I think the more that autistic people, neurodivergent people come together and recognize that like our experience, our perception of the world is significantly different than the people who are running it. We obviously have to do something about it. We have to create some kind of, we have to stand our ground. And as a person who lives that, it's, it's tricky because we can understand it a little bit better than they can. Yeah, It's just a disconnect there that, how do we bridge that gap? Yeah, because it's how much. Yeah, Go it's ahead. totally Go ahead. definitely Sorry. tricky because the key thing of making that change to bridging the gap is actually having people to listen to us. But as you say, that for like the trans non-binary community, it's that people talk over us and not listen and hear the words we say in an listen to understand our experiences and our. As you talk about the neurodivergent community, most, well, the majority of the neurodivergent community definitely have an instinct to tell people, like, I might not be who you think I am, and I have a right to express that and be myself, find and explore that, and not to be put into any sort of box or stereotype of, like, viewing my gender as, like, just like boys, as you might have thought of boys years ago, but I could be like non-binary, like as I identify as non-binary myself, but I'm not a lot exactly like I'm sometimes masking after other people around me, so it might not always be as open about that correcting people on like misuses of pronouns or whatever, but it's something that I see that could be way of liberating and like finding ways of like expressive my like could express my parents or whatever and like as you say that like it has helped you in more sense sense of empathy sense of how you look at yourself but when you look at yourself as with gen- gender now it does help that we can be a bit more yourself as to otherwise it's like you feel a lot Unmask then if you're not expressing yourself, if you go, I mean. Absolutely. Being able to express that openly has, has helped with that unmasking. I think a lot of people understand what the, the masking thing is. And, we've, we've used that term a couple of times. You're good. Being honest with yourself and also just being honest with people and having the willingness to have rapport with people who may not understand that, I think it's going to be the most beneficial thing because you'll end up with these very one-way conversations. I'm trying to say one thing. You're trying to say another, yeah. there's, there's no connect there. So I think 
as time goes on, I really hope that the neurodivergent community, trans community, LGBTQ community, however you want to slice it, however you want to label it, I think we need to be more receptive of what the other side has to say. But the other side also has to be receptive of us as well, because the world is changing very quickly. And with the advent of the internet, it's it's only going to keep going up and up and up. And as things get harder and harder, I think we need to have, we just need to be more open to the idea that we both have different experiences. We perceive and feel differently. And once there's some kind of, I think there needs to be a, commu- a, like a communion among the community because there's yeah. a division within our communities themselves. Yeah. We're even getting in fights with each other. And even in the ABDL age or Russian community, there's, there's infighting all the time. And yes. I see it and I'm just like, I wish we could just get over this. We're all on the same team. We're all fighting the same battle. Yeah. It's just, we all are, I think we've all become individually radicalized in some kind of way. And so once we can kind of get over our own egos, in that way because i think we've all got an ego yeah. we all do they're all inflated and now that we have the internet yeah. we all have the opportunity to be that one person everyone hears so once we stop you know forcing everyone to listen to us and once the division of opinions can kind of yeah. be diluted down and like we understand there just has to be some kind of overall acceptance of what can be and if we can apply that whatever that end is will there be some kind of union across communities as you were saying then it's something that while statistically with divergent people we have to self-advocate and do self see a lot you know for ourselves as individuals and communicating our needs but as say the importance of doing it as community whether it's as trans non-binary neurodivergent community as like educators you know ABDL community like you gotta be able to group together and actually advocate because sometimes as you say that sometimes you may be like non-speaking or semi-speaking like when you request and feeling in that small space but also then with like autistic burnout you might not be able to have the energy and ability to actually, when people are able to, you are able to make people listen and sometimes not make, have the energy and the capacity to make people listen. And that's definitely like a big thing of the potence of having a community there, you know, to advocate and actually to get people on the same page. But when he was talking about being autistic, well, at what point did you find out you were autistic and had ADHD and get your diagnosis? I was diagnosed with ADHD at five, so pretty young. My mother was just starting her psychology program at the time. She started to notice as she was being educated that I, I had a displacement for these. Uh, I was possibly ADHD and tested positive for ADHD. And when it was made known to me that I was autistic, this was the age of the DSM-4. At the time, I was diagnosed with PDD-NOS, which is perva- uh, P- pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified or not specified. It's not a specific pervasive developmental disorder. So what that meant was like I fit criteria for a couple of different things like lack of social skills, inability to uh, 
recognize cues, things like that, emotional dysregulation, problems with learning, I guess, like some kind of learning disability. Yeah. I haven't really researched PDD and OS specifically because it's not in the DSM anymore. It's not really relevant. Because with the advent of the DSM-5, it became autism spectrum disorder. Autistic people have spiky profiles. So like yeah. we can be great in certain areas like special interests, filing away facts and uh, retaining information about things that we are very interested in. It's something we're very good at. However, there could be other areas that we're, we could be lacking in, like the ability to communicate certain emotions, being able to perceive certain emotions, even like understanding like what I am feeling is something a lot of autistic yeah. people struggle in. Others can pinpoint that maybe a little bit better than others. And then there could be like uh, being yeah. able to coordinate, understanding where we are in physical space, dyslexia, something that I struggle with, jumbling words together, talking too fast, which is also could be like comorbidity with ADHD, yeah. having comorbid symptoms of other mental complications. Yeah. Yeah, as you yeah. yeah, that's fair. The kind of big bubble off, you know, what comes into the, you know, neurodivergent and bell, all these different conditions. And like as a related to back to yourself. So yeah, as I'm saying that, you know, you've got ADHD and autism and yeah, so and what what age was your autism diagnosis exactly? I was in middle school at the time. They my family had noticed that I was really starting to struggle in school and like my social problem, like my interaction with them, understanding them like the social cue thing was something that they really picked up on. And so they they had me tested. I think it was also right after a bunch of legal stints that I had, I, I ended up in a week in juvenile lockup for a lot of stuff that I was doing at the time. And just very dysregulated and they needed answers. I don't carry yeah. it around like this thing it is. It is who I am as a person. It is an innate part of my personality, how I perceive the world, how I interact with individuals and the world itself. So yeah, at about 12, 13 years old is when I officially had it on paper that I was autistic. So, and as I said, then it kind of understand then when you like link into like, oh, oh like your experience of like with a just like a latest diagnosis then kind of explains how some like, oh, like sometimes like uh, it presents a bit with mental health, you know, like struggles and challenges. And then, you know, like I say that, I guess, before you were diagnosed then, you know, like, you know, when you said you were, you know, were weak in juvenile prison, you must, I assume that must be some of the misunderstandings all of, like, maybe autistic, be neurodivergent behaviour, even though uh, I guess, don't want, maybe not want to go into the circumstances of all that, but I'll say that, you know, it's something, I guess, you know, about, but it's like something that, you might have only started recognizing so like in your adult years what it really means to be autistic since you didn't have the understanding of what you almost like what your gender was when you were younger. I think like looking back it's harder because I know so much more than I did now and I, yeah. I um thinking about how my mother was a psychologist, I wish she would have known a lot of this, but I also understand that like it's not yeah. a specialty. And it's different raising a kid with autism than it is working with someone that you have diagnosed. This person is autistic. That you have it. You've deduced that through some kind of scientific 
metric based way. You can visually see like these are how these are statistically numbers, whatever, however you want to go about explaining that. This is how this person marks. This is how the brain works. Whereas, you know, I gave birth to this person. This, this is how they behave. I don't understand a lot of this at all, even though like, yes, my background may be in X, Y, and Z, but it's very hard to apply that to your child. So at the time, one thing that I will be transparent about is I, I was raised in a very alcoholic household. There's a lot of alcohol abuse involved, especially my father. Then my mother kind of adopted that, that alcohol abuse as well, because I think it was a way for her to cope with the fact that her husband wasn't treating her very well because of it. So she kept up with him to numb that or to, to keep up with him. Stay for sure. That's how it was. But what that ended up causing was a lot of emotional tensions between them and then emotional tensions between me and my father. Now, my father and I share no blood. He's, he's, he's a stepfather, I guess, is the yeah. best way to explain it. However, because he stepped into my life at such a young age, I had to have been about six months old when I met him, that when they were married, I was about a year and a half. My second youngest sibling was just barely born at this time. So he he is my father by, by all extents, really, yeah. other than the fact that we don't share blood. Yeah. So that made it really hard because like I understood that we didn't share that paternal relationship. So I, I was very leaning towards my mother. However, because of the things that my mother was struggling with and my own mental, my, my own special needs that I needed yeah. made it hard for them to, to manage me because they were busy drinking a lot of the time and constantly getting in arguments they were at each other's throats enough where that stress was then put onto me that stressed me out I was constantly exposed to domestic violence arguments that led from you know nine o'clock in the evening till three o'clock in the morning constant threats of I'm leaving that on top of when I started to try to do something about it i.e removing myself from that situation in the form of running away, engaging in delinquency, stuff like that became a problem. So then that fed into the, the resentment that was already built between my parents and the rift between my father and I. So it was just a, I think it was just a perfect recipe for disaster, having an autistic ADHD child that's very disorganized. I had a hard time understanding sarcasm. I took everything very literally, which then induced a lot of anxiety problems, an anxiety disorder, possibly a depression problem because neurodivergent people, autistic people are statistically significantly higher to have to, to anxiety and depression. On top of my father having anxiety problems uh, he had been on, my mother having her own emotional dysregulation problems due to the fact that she was in an abusive relationship, but still trying to do her best to raise eventually four kids, one of which was a delinquent, in and out of lockup, always running away, trying to manage an out-of-control child became very hard. So it was very confusing for all of us. And... I think that did a lot more harm than good because of their lack of understanding of me as a child. 
And because I was not willing to open up to them about the things that I felt, because I felt constantly under pressure, constantly having my safety feel like it was threatened. I can even go back to a memory they had when I was three years old. I was, I can remember banging on the door a lot, asking for my mother, crying out for my mother. And eventually my father during a drunken rage just rips my door off of my hinges and I never saw that door again. So that sense of safety that I was supposed to have yeah. at a very young age was completely stripped away from me. So never feeling safe, that negatively impacted my relationship with my family, which then negatively impacted my interactions with my family, which then yeah. in turn, you know, it's, just, it's just a domino effect. So yeah. being a, a neurodivergent child in an already shaky household really did not work out very well in terms of, again, going back to communication with people that don't understand. I couldn't do anything to make them understand because I was too scared to explain that to them because I didn't feel like they would believe me. It's that kind of thing sad to pack that a lot of new divergents to people I come across online with, like, like who are ADHD or ADHD autistic and all that. It can, you know, come from houses where the parents and family members have, like, addiction issues or, like, abusive or narcissistic stuff like that is highly in common in community and I think that does explain where your regression comes from in the sense that like back then you, you went to you had to grow up and you were aware of so much that now at the age you sometimes you want to be a bit oblivious and not you know be aware of so much of the, like more traumatic and overwhelming things going on when the world around you. Like, it kind of explains why that, if you know, like, had quite emotional upbringing in the past, that why you would seek pleasure and comfort out of something that you safe and wouldn't cause you any, like, feelings of sadness and upset when you watch cartoons over any, like, certain dramas because. Like the heightened, maybe heightened sense of empathy and sensitivity are not play a distinct memory from when you were like early on as a kid. I can impact need of retreating into the comforts that typically associated with children enjoying and seeking pleasure or out of. You know, we've also went to ask you with your age regression. Is this something that since you grew up, being identified as a boy and thinking, being told that you're a boy, things that boys typically do, even though you had me bad feeling in the back of your head, yeah, you didn't feel entirely comfortable or you didn't feel like you were such a, you weren't a boy. So do you think that regress, like regress now, is it a space to be feminine side and enjoy the things that you wouldn't have been able to do that, that if you were able to be raised in a gender that you, you know, you feel they recognize that you are as a trans woman. That do you think that has helped you reclaim your gender when regressing as well? Absolutely. It's funny you bring it up in that way because I can remember growing up, it was my mother's little pony set that I was obsessed over specifically. And I didn't treat them very well because I was a boy. So I, there was that little exposure to like feminine toy 
really contributed to that awareness later on that like these are the things that I really wanted. When it comes to age regression, yes, it does help reclaim that that, that, that femininity because my age regression manifests more in the little girl fashion. High-pitched, squealing tails, like I doll up emotionally and in the way that I uh, express the way that I speak, the way that I hold myself and all that. So yeah, I absolutely agree, especially with like the kinds of shows that I watch. I feel that like Peppa Pig, I know boys who watch Peppa Pig, like the girlier shows have really helped me accept that going back to the connection, the, the association between like femininity and childishness. The, the Disney princess, the aloof Disney yeah. princess. My partner, she compares me to Rapunzel a lot. That helps me recognize the place that I am at mentally when I am regressed, especially when I'm looking for other things to like invest in. It's always very deeply feminine activities. I mean, how like this is, this, and he's not an octopus and I have to get all correct on you, but my jellyfish here, he, even though he is a he, pink, white, and gray. So like color schemes are big. I'm an artist. I, colors are a big thing for me. I have synesthesia. I feel color. I can smell color. I can give color a texture. I can almost give color a sort of. So colors are a big thing for me. So like bright, vibrant pastels, things like that have always been big, especially when, even though I was still male identifying, I wore a lot of black. And I wore black a lot because it was my replacement color for all the colors I wanted to wear, which were like lavender, it's where lavender rain comes from. It's my favorite color. Bright pinks, yellows, yellow could be a gender neutral color. So even gender neutral stuff like yellow, gray, black, white colors are a very big thing for me. It's reclaiming my femininity my gender in, in age play or, or regression holds a lot of significance for me because of the way I, the way my emotions manifest themselves yeah. when I am in that, in that mental space, that, that little space, it's always very feminine. And I think sometimes it just makes you feel happy. It's Chavez, Blas, Color, Arant. I say it's a bit liberating and reclaiming that sense within yourself and just being a bit more finding a joy in things because I say that I can see how it does help you really and also like one thing I went I have a thing I want to ask you briefly because I guess the one is keep you too long, much longer but as I said you know like you're in you type of dependent and I know it's something that some people in the ABDL or age regress community might do as a choice because they find it's comforting that the odds like just something that they find pleasant but as you say that it's something that it started out as a medical reason so how did you start using diapers and was it something that you always felt comfortable in so the diaper thing specifically is where 99% of my trauma comes from. Before I get into that yeah. really quickly, diapers for medical reasons in the ABDL community is actually a lot more common than you would think. Half of the people that I speak to have been in and out of diapers throughout their entire life. They've struggled with bad wedding, struggled with daytime incontinence, mostly specifically like wedding accidents. One of my close friends on my social media, they and I 
go into great detail about the stories that we have that we have shared back and forth about instances of like having accidents and going back to diapers, I guess. So, but but me specifically, I can't remember exactly when I was potty trained. I remember somewhere my mother told me she tried starting me at two, which I was like, okay, that's really young in my opinion. I think two is a little young because I have noticed kids sometimes take a little bit longer than that. Yeah. But me, apparently, she says I potty trained easily. I can remember at about three years old, I immediately had this overwhelming feeling that I just wasn't ready. I remember my last diaper change. I remember being put into underwear for the first time. It was nerve wracking. I hated it. Hated it. And the older I got, the more stressful it got because I still had younger siblings that were always in diapers. So I always had them near me. I always had pull-ups near me. And I eventually just like, not, not even eventually, I think just throughout my entire life, I always, I snagged one here and there once or twice a month. I always went back because there was that, that sense of like, I still needed these. And I did because often during school, I would have, I would have accidents that I would never tell my family about because I was sucking up to them because they they potty trained me, right? And so I think in my brain, they expected me to be potty trained. So I was like, okay, I have to. But I'm still having accidents. I'm still having issues holding it because a common thing with autism is problems with interoception. Interoception for, for the for, for the audience. We have more than just like our our what's it, the four or five senses, you know, touch, taste, smell, sight. You know, those we also have interoception, which is our internal or, or our sense of recognize our internal signals. Am I hot? Am I cold? Am I thirsty? Am I hungry? Is this itchy? Do I need to go to the bathroom? Those kinds of things. So autistic people struggle, especially younger autistic people, struggle a lot with incontinence problems all throughout their lives. So I am one of those cases where it was just on and off throughout my entire life and then it was about when I was about 10 years old, my mother found diapers in my drawer. Not happy about it at all. Scolded me for it. Scolded me. And then this progressed, like the scoldings and the the intensity of the scoldings just increased over the years because they had this expectation that like at 10, 12, 13 years old, I should not be doing this. However, my sibling just below me was still a bedwetter at the time. So that was confusing to me. Like, okay, but why can he still have these? As an autistic kid, I couldn't explain that because I was too afraid of them not believing because they wouldn't believe half the stuff that that come out of my mouth because I was so imaginative. I would just go mm-hmm. off on these stories. And so they they eventually were convinced that I was just a storyteller. So I came out to them one day about it, I came home. I was about 13 years old. This is sometime after my PGNOS diagnosis. I came home and they had my mattress flip and they found my entire stash. And I looked at my father as he looked at me. I could, he had a beer in his hand and he's like, do you really need these kids? And I just like, in, in as much shame as I possibly could, I just nodded my head. And he's like, hey, whatever. Didn't even further the conversation. And I've brought this up to him once and he doesn't believe it. I'm like, yeah, sure, dude. So that sucks. But then I think a second instance happened and he was very drunk 
And from across, like on our little ottoman that we had that we used as a coffee table, he just, he would start throwing stuff at me, trying to like figure out why I was so fixated on diapers. Cause he thought it was like a fetishist thing. Cause I was a developing boy. Nah. He thought it was cause like I was getting off in these things. And like, of course, of course it was going to happen. I was a young developing boy. going to happen. I'm going to experiment with these things. But it was also like, I, I still needed them. I just didn't know how to convey that to them because yeah. like I I didn't even know how to explain it myself. I still have accidents, question mark, right? I eventually I had to set little little notes for myself here and there, just like I'd shove one in my pocket. And I when I would ever I would just like have my hands in my pockets, I'd pull it out and I'd say, go to the bathroom or something like that. I did that from my parents to remind me to go to the bathrooms, and that's how I managed it for a really long time. High school came around. I had friends who were willing to do very fishy things for me. So I started ordering things off of Amazon gift cards. They would give to me to avoid my family members from knowing where all this money was coming from. And I would have them shipped to friends' houses. They would bring them to me. Their families were aware of this. And they, it was a huge oh thing, this weird like underground operation that I was running with one of my friends to get them. Because they struggled with the same thing, ironically enough. So like we both understood their family and my family. Then senior year came around and then I just started shipping them to the place that I was staying at. And then ever since then, it's just been on and off 24-7. Then I got into a serious relationship. I wasn't transitioned at the time. They were not open to the idea of me transitioning. And then I had a kid. That caused a little couple of issues here and there. And I basically purged everything which anybody in the ABDL community knows how purging is like. You just get rid of everything. There's so much shame built up. And then I would have accidents. So then I would stop sleeping. At about 19, 20 years old, I wasn't sleeping until about four in the morning. But I had to be to work at six in the morning. So that caused problems. And so then eventually that relationship deteriorated. And it wasn't until I started living on my own that I started going 24-7. It wasn't until then that I met that aforementioned partner who was open to the idea of me transitioning, that like she understood that I needed them. She just wasn't okay with the ABDL thing. And eventually the ABDL thing made her uncomfortable. And, you know, that added to the stresses. And so it eventually progressed to a point where like I was fully dedicated to be 24 seven, even though there was so shame attached to it. Like I knew it, I needed it because I was just, I was destroying laundry. It got awkward being in public. I never left the house. I just, I got so depressed. Until at that point, you could, you started to recognize and like before, when you were younger, you were, you weren't aware that it could be a part of, even though you weren't exactly diagnosed when you like came out to your your father about using diapers, but then you came, then you started to open up about then when you were teenagers, then you didn't even know how it could affect your autism and from trauma-based angle of come out with because you couldn't sense when you need to go to the toilet or like with anxiety sometimes like you went to pee a bit more and then it's just like it's just that stress thing of it that that can affect your bladder and messes your bladder up a bit. And so I guess that's where you didn't understand to this point where you describe it where you starting to touch on that you can't go without them because it's actually 
something which is kind of disabled in continents where you actually need some age, something to age you for, which is like this. Absolutely. And it took a lot of effort getting over the shame too. It was a sister of mine who explained it to me very well. She told me, I understand why you need these. And I hope you understand that this is considered a mobility aid. And I was like, yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. In August, before my 25th birthday, I video chatted my folks the very first time. We've never video chatted. My mother downloaded Snapchat so that she can keep in tabs with me because from financial instability and everything like that coming out of an already you know, poor, not really poor, but yeah. low income household. I didn't know how to work money very well. So didn't know how to pay my bills. And I was just going through phone numbers. And so they're like, all right, let me get Snapchat. Let's video chat. And so we video chatted and it was both of them. And I finally came out to them saying, Hey, listen, this, this diaper problem that I had for years and years and years, I need you guys to know that like, I wear them all the time, whether you guys like that or not, I don't care. I know that there's a lot of tensions involved. I don't care. I'm not going to allow that to, to control me. And I'm not going to allow those experiences to hold me back from being honest with you guys that like, you guys did not understand that like, I needed these. Like I wear these all the time. And they kind of just, they thought about it and they're like, yeah, no, I, we understand that like things happened and they could have been treated differently. They don't drink anymore, fortunately. So I think it's kind of like they're coming to, you know, the, now that their consciousnesses are clear from alcohol, they are, they were able to approach that a little bit better. So now yeah. they are aware and things are, things are going upwards. Fortunately, now that I've come clean with that, because my brother that I've talked about a couple of times, the bedwetter, he's below me. Yeah. He asked me about that couple of years ago when I was visiting and I kind of had to tell him I'm not ready to talk about this. It took two years for me to process that and that and then I came out to my folks about that and they're aware of it and uh, my partner's been aware of it. Again, it's just one of those things. Uh, it's a part of who I am, just like my neurodivergency. Yeah. It's, it's a result of my neurodivergency yeah. and yeah, they understand that. Being dis disabled, and it's going be something for whatever reasons people get judged on because People are ready to wear that when you go into like a like a pharmacy or drugstore. That they are there for a reason, and you use it for a reason. It's like people just judge people wrongly for it. When why should it be different than using glasses or urinates? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad that your relationship with parents is getting better. Yeah, no, I it it required a lot of confidence on my part to to stop myself free from those limitations that they placed on me because there's a lot of, I'm going to use a, an analogy or metaphor here, but mental shackles that they placed me on that was just anxiety inducing. And so I had to, I had to be honest with myself and be truthful with myself that like, I need these. This is, this is a genuine disability. I can't treat it like it's what they thought it was like, it's a no. weird like, yes, of course it is a fetish because it's ABDL in itself is a fetish, right? Yeah. So, but aside from just, just that, like, that's kind of a byproduct of it. It's, it's very much like a disability. I need these, yeah. these, these help me go about life without stressing out about it. And now that they recognize that with clear heads, we've all come to a place where like, they understand that I have set these boundaries and I've been honest and that uh, they they now know 
how it is now that the storm has settled and that time has gone on and I have been able to articulate myself in a way that they can actually understand now. And that has helped quite a bit. And our relationship has healed since then. So it's just taken a lot of honesty on my part and receptiveness on their part as well, which I'm, I'm blessed that they have actually taken the time to develop in themselves. So. And I feel like I do you with like by the society between, you know, like factions and, you know, disagreements with different groups. It's like, that's how eventually like things would have to improve. But, you know, when you were saying that, you know, like you, you also like you label on your social media and identify it as ABTL, even though, like you said, you didn't like, but the reason isn't fetishized. But how did you get to the point where you where you're probably able to say that you are a diaper lover. They don't know that for sure. But to say yeah, I'm a diaper yeah, lover, yeah. I'm only willing to tell them so much. I accepted my the diaper lover ABDL identity when and Santa, I, yeah. I came to accept that when my partner allowed me the ability to feel comfortable in myself too. Because all my previous relationships were just like, we understand the incontinence, we don't understand the ABDL, we're not going to deal with it. And if that's going to be you, that can be you. It's just, I can't be with you if that's going to be a thing. Yeah. So when when my partner and I were just friends at the time and discussing everything like that, and I guess kind of breaking the ice, when she expressed that openness and that that willingness to still pursue a potential relationship, even though I was incontinent and I had the attraction towards this lifestyle, did I actually start to accept myself in that? And that took a lot of time. But I think to say when I fully accepted it was I think when we got married, like I, it was just a milestone that I know that I I was able to say for sure that like this person loves me for who I am. And there's that, there's a degree of external validation that I guess that I needed to, to further validate internally that I can accept this as a part of me because I know I'm not crazy because someone doesn't look at me like I'm crazy. Yeah. So it, it took my partner telling me I'm not crazy for me to believe that I'm not crazy in this. And that, that is ultimately what led me to, to accepting this, this part of me that I am a very proud and open, not, not open, open, but open in, yeah. in certain spaces, ABDL. Yeah. So, and that, I would say about a year ago, year and, and a half ago. You know, when you said that quite a majority of, quite a high number of people who are ABDL are incontinent, but when you said, in a way, when you said that, I thought it's kind of good in a sense because, if that's your, you know, like your life of what do you have to wear twenty four seven, like any type of clothing you wear, you should be able to love that and you know, like feel a sense of pleasure and joy in what you wear, and that should be the same for like the day. Absolutely, in the field of psychology, there's this there's this term called cognitive reframing, and I think being a deal has helped me cognitively frame. In other words, it has helped me helped me mentally perceive or see it differently 
So when I say like cognitive reframing, like my fear of someone finding out about this was mostly off of the fact that like people don't see this as a positive thing. Like it's like, ew, you're an adult, you have to wear these. Adults don't wear these. And for me, it's so that's uncomfortable. However, I had to 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 rethink it to I had to see it in a different light. And this community, the ABDL community, and the the ability for me to express myself in a more immature way allows me to accept the fact that like, yeah, I have to wear diapers. I'm an adult baby. What are you gonna do about it? Like, come fight me. So it is it has fueled me a little bit to be more comfortable in myself and to accept the fact that like, yes, this, I need these. And I'm an adult baby. Who else needs these babies, of course, but I'm an adult too. So there's that twofold thing. I think sometimes you do need to do that cognitive framing when it comes to disability, because, you know, like disabled, you know, like, like what is thought as disabling sometimes is like things negatively, like, you know, when people are seen as like wheelchair bound or, you know, like use that negative language, sometimes you need to look at things positively just to, you know, be able to feel comfortable in your identity as that. Because, you know, it's like the only identity that can really acquire or, you know, be entirely born straight, like the perfect I can actually like have us like find a community and find a sense of pride in our kind of personality and it's like it's something that not many of our disabilities can have you know not not many disabilities but not many identities have that same thing absolutely yeah totally agree yeah when do you start using adult pacifiers i think that was one of the first things i really dipped my toes into when it came to like the the adult baby accessories i think i I bought my first what or my adult pacifier when I was in that aforementioned relationship. The first relationship that really accepted me for it because she enjoyed them. She had a an oral fixation. I had to have been about 21 at the time. So about two years ago, I started yeah. experimenting with pacifiers. And ever since then, I oh I've lost track of it. It's it's nearby, but I've I've spent a good amount of money on just accessories for pacifiers and stuff like that. So, yeah, about two years ago. Do you find that? Is that like something that you went to explore and do you think exploring has helped? When we talk about like oral stimming and stimming for autistic people, do you think it does help like a comfort thing? Absolutely. It even helped me get off of vaping. I vaped for years. I've been vaping since I was 18. And I'd usually, I would suck on a pacifier during my time. And what I've noticed is like, whenever I had a pacifier in my mouth, I didn't have the urge to vape because it was the hand, the mouth thing, that, that oral fixation thing. And so the more I have allowed myself to, to nom and chew on or suck on a pacifier, I have found myself less and less likely to resort to, to being dependent off of a nicotine device. So it is. It's benefited my health quite a bit. I've been free of nicotine for almost two months now because of it. Because anytime I think of nicotine, I immediately reach for my pacifier. Back then, I didn't really do that. Like I would kind of have it as like a side item. But the more I paid attention to that, I was like, I don't need nicotine. I just want this. 
Yeah. So it has helped a lot, especially with the stimming too. I grind my teeth a lot. I clench my jaw and my sleep. Oh yeah, I do grind my teeth a lot as well. Yeah, it hurts. It's something that with autistic people sometimes, like you chew something or you grind teeth and then for autistic ADHD adults or even some teens, you end up vaping or smoking. But like, I think they can be quite like healthy alternative. And like, as you can find adult size ones that quite a lot better for your teeth. And it's one of those things that I thought that would help me being autistic. I kind of like had the idea of trying trying. And so we got glad that if I'm, it's one of those things that helped me find the community and helped by finding it, it helps me unmask and like give me inspiration for this podcast. And as wrapping up now, I want to thank you for coming on. If there's anything else you want to say that you haven't got to see or say already, or if there's anything you want to promote where people can follow you, please feel free to say that. My final remark is uh, if you feel alone, I'm, I'm talking to everyone that's listening to this right now. I am literally talking to you. If you feel alone, you're not. You are not. There's a group near you. I guarantee it. Go find them. As for me, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and FetLife. Most of my handles, I think, are the same. On Instagram, it is at the rain. And best to navigate there because you can also find the rest of my links in the bio of my description. And again, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and FetLife. I also do post adult content on JFF, so I do appreciate any of the support that goes towards that. Great thanks for listening to Passing with Autistic Arts, the second episode. The next episode will be out next Wednesday uh, with a guest I won't be yet to announce, so please check on social media about that guests and the guests I'm booking and all the other details about the podcast as mentioned earlier on in the podcast a lot also if you like to again text please can touch let me know what you like about this podcast we like to hear if you if you like this podcast please also send it to somebody you know that make like it and make people aware of it as they want to be able to go this podcast and do quite well on this one because you know it's something that I feel is quite special to me and it's something quite unique as a podcast idea. So on Joanna said, please say uh, give positive reviews and make sure people know about this podcast and get in touch if you've got anything to any correspondence you want to get in touch. And thanks to Lavender Rain and with Lavender Vane, you'll be able to find more about you on the website project. In the coming days, there'll be a bit, bit of about sex and about you and where you can find all the uh, links and where you can follow on social media. And thanks again for listening and the well, also just want to let you know that on the website there'll be transcripts up in it a day or two as well as getting a video up on YouTube for you to watch in full. Also, then be an addition to uh, additional uh, 
unedited cut to this interview where I cut some bits out just to keep it under two hours and be in a uh, longer interview to listen back to in full. Uh, so keep an eye out for all the last stuff. So fancy again and hope to see you next week. Bye.